Hey, hey there, happy innovators. It's time for another Singularity Podcast. Are you ready? Good. You know, the last time I did a podcast, I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do another five-day podcast, you know, those podcasts where I do a little bit each day of the week. And, uh, you know, rather than sitting down all in one bite and just doing the whole thing, I decided, you know, it's, it's good sometimes to kind of spread it out and, uh, you know, allow for different kind of thoughts and different kind of ideas, you know, uh, throughout the week rather than just trying to cram it all into one day. So that's what you got right here. I decided today I'm going to do another five-day podcast. So today is Monday, August 24th. 2020 and uh, very early in the morning so I'm a little bit dragging a little bit tired maybe a little slow but uh, I'm sure that that won't affect anything at least I hope it won't you know there's this song by David Bowie it's called Let's Dance and I know that probably everyone who is hearing this podcast knows exactly what I'm talking about and I'm sure that you remember the song you may even like it a lot you may have even bought the album you know, yeah, it was a pretty big hit for David Bowie. And of course, the, you know, the song was propelled by the video that accompanied the song at the time it was released. And, uh, you know, so I've always kind of associated uh, a song like Let's Dance by David Bowie with the video. Like whenever I hear the song on the radio or someone's playing it or something, in my mind, when I'm hearing it, I'll go back to that video, that visual representation that accompanied the song. And that's probably because, you know, I'm part of the MTV generation. You know, we were the first generation, really, when I was a kid to come up with music that was always accompanied by a visual, you know, uh, um, you know, prior to that, it was only radio or you know, eight track tapes or cassette tapes or whatnot. And uh, so my generation was the first to be introduced to the music video. So, uh, you know, during that time, I'm sure as most of you remember, you know, the visual and the aesthetics of a rock group became uh, very important. You know, it became central. Uh, maybe sometimes even eclipsing the music itself, like the visual was actually more impactful or maybe sometimes more important, you know. But um, I got to thinking about that, you know. And uh, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, especially because it's like, I wonder now, like in hindsight, which is 2020 vision, (laughs) of course, Um, I kind of wonder, is that such a good thing? You know, like, was it actually, uh, at the time, I mean, it helped to sell records, right? You put out a song, you put out a video, and, you know, even to this day, that's really kind of like how it's done. But I'm not 100% sure that it's such a great thing. Like, in some ways, did that idea ruin rock and roll? Like, did it kind of change it to the point where it became so superficial that, you know, the music was no longer important? And it would kind of, you know, depending on the audience that your video appealed to and the imagery and those things, the fashion, 
the hairstyles, all those things, um, you know, how much did those impact the music and, and actually maybe sometimes narrow that audience for that artist? Like, because they were so niched, you know, they were so, uh, you know, specific. They had to have certain criteria that needed to be met. You know, your hair had to be so high. Your pants had to be tight. You know, you had to have something visual to accompany your music that would help to, like, identify and solidify, like, your brand and, like, what you were selling, what audience you were aiming at. But when I think about it now, when I, when it enters my mind and I'm kind of examining this idea, I really do kind of feel that that might be bad. It might have been a bad thing. Now, don't get me wrong. I love videos. I mean, some of them are art, you know, um, especially over the past 20 or 30 years. It's a long time. It's a lot of videos, you know. It's a lot of songs and a lot of videos. And some of those videos that have come out over, you know, since MTV started, you know, are masterpieces of, of cinematography. I mean, they're they're great, you know. But it really shouldn't be about the visual. It really should be about the music, right? I mean, that's really uh, what is being sold or that's what is being conveyed. Like, you couldn't have the video without the song. But you can have the song without the video, right? And... I wonder if, you know, that has harmed the art of songwriting in this way. And I'll explain it to you. Now, when you think about it, like when an artist puts out a new song, let's say it's a great song like Let's Dance, and they put out a video as well, you know, you do associate the music with the visuals, right? So you're no longer just listening to the song. Like, you're not active listening, really. You're hearing the song, but um, there's this visual that comes with it. And, you know, using Let's Dance as a perfect example. Like, I had heard that song a thousand times, you know? I'd seen the video a thousand times. And, you know, I've heard it on the radio and stuff, but I never really, really listened to the song. Like, I never really, really opened my ears and really listened to the song, just the song, right? So, a little while ago, maybe maybe a, a couple months ago or something, um, you know, I was listening to YouTube while I was working, and this song, Let's Dance by David Bowie, came on, and of course, I couldn't see the video. I was busy doing something. I was just listening to the song, so I decided to just stop what I was doing and to just listen, just listen, you know? And it was like hearing the song for the first time for me. It was really something I had never really done before like this, where, you know, um, it was not a record I bought. It was not something that I, you know, loved so much that I had to have it so it wasn't like something I listened to in my spare time right it was something that would you know come on the YouTube or on the radio and you know so I decided I was going to start this idea of like I guess I would call it active listening that's that's kind of what I'm going with right now 
But, um, you know, I'm going back through the music of my youth and uh, I'm abandoning the visual. So, like, I'm, I'm listening to music without any kind of superficiality or whatever, like, at all. It's just, what is the song doing, you know? And I've talked about this idea before of good is good, you know, this philosophy I have where it's like, it doesn't matter to me, like, who sings the song. It doesn't matter to me what kind of clothes they're wearing or what their hairstyle is. I listen to music, you know, for what it is. You know, I, I, I don't really care so much about the fashion and the aesthetics. You know, I'm a musician, right? So, um... And I gotta tell you, it's really been kind of shocking a little bit to me to go back and to just listen to what the musicians of my youth were actually doing. You know, like what are they actually doing? What is the performance like in, in, in the studio, right? Because, you know, when you're in a recording studio, even though it's not in front of a live audience, you know, they're still singing it. They're still playing it. A lot of times they're constructing the song, you know, in the studio, right? So when you're listening to these sound recordings from back in the 80s, 90s, even now, 2000s, you know, it's really a different kind of experience when you can separate the music from any kind of visual, any kind of aesthetic. And, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of going back, listening to the productions and the songwriting and, you know, even some of like the hair metal bands, you know, which in my opinion are not always bad. The music was not always bad. The music is one thing. The fashion is another, you know, and it's really kind of distracting, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, it probably has been the undoing of a lot of these great songs that have come out in the past. Like, you know, because the artist that made the song and made the video uh, was so niched, you know, and, you know, the video was pointed and directed at a specific audience. And, you know, the record executives and the video producers, you know, they all had that worked out. You know, it's a it's a fact. You know, they knew that formula. They know what they're doing when it comes to promoting music. You know, that's why we've heard about a lot of these bands and we know these great songs from the past but isn't it weird to kind of think about that the idea of being part of the MTV generation and it maybe maybe it wasn't such a good thing all the time i mean think about it is how many bands have you know faded into obscurity because you know even though they had a great song you know maybe their visual didn't work it didn't please the audience or, you know, maybe it was like um, it just appealed, you know, the visual, the video uh, just appealed to such a narrow audience that, you know, it made the song insignificant. You know, it made people tune out because the video was not done correctly or, you know, it didn't appeal the visuals didn't appeal to certain people. How many great songs have been lost to obscurity because that happened? 
you know, and I can think of a handful of examples myself, you know, especially when it comes to like 80s hair metal and those songs that were coming out back in the day. And, and, you know, I'd be the first to acknowledge that a lot of that stuff was really corny. You know, a lot of the videos were ridiculous. A lot of the songs were ridiculous. The subject matter was ridiculous, but not all the time. You know, not all the songs that came out from the hair metal era or even, you know, the industrial music era or rave dance music era, you know, uh, these styles of music that were so uh, inextricably tied and bound to a certain way of dressing, a certain way of looking and acting. You know, certain kinds of, I don't know what, lyrics, you know, that appeal to a specific crowd. But every once in a while, you know, if you go back and you listen, you you realize that sometimes the songs were masterfully constructed and masterfully written and performed in the studio. I mean, they're great, you know. And this song, Let's Dance, is probably, you know, a great example of that and then the song was always good I always liked it but I never really just listened to the song so I did that and it was so cool it was so cool and I you know I got into it a little bit you know I decided after hearing the song you know if 150 times you know I heard it for like the first time you know I really felt that way, and I was really kind of taken aback at how well, actually, how, how, how kind of psychedelic that song is. Like, it always kind of struck me as like a pop song, but when you really go back and listen to Let's Dance by David Bowie, and you close your eyes, and you just listen to what the music is doing, and what his voice is doing, and what he's saying, it's really kind of a much more artistic and much more abstract you know of a song it's not it's not really a pop song it's it's more of like psychedelic it's it's more tripped out and his voice is incredible and the music is great you know and i just i just saw this video on youtube uh interview with nile rogers you know he's a famous producer uh he used to play guitar in a band called chic c-h-i-c you know back in the day kind of like a disco funky band you know and uh you know this guy you know emerged as one of the top producers in the rock and roll industry just over time you know and he worked with uh who duran duran you know a lot of those bands uh, that were like funky you know have funky rhythm sections um And, you know, Bowie had signed him up to work on this album, Let's Dance, right? And, uh, you know, this this guy, Niall Rogers, is talking about the song, Let's Dance, and how it came about, how it was written. And, you know, he tells this story like, oh, you know, Bowie, him and Bowie were living in a house working on the album you know, getting ready, like pre-production, writing songs, starting to record songs. They were, you know, gearing up for these sessions. And Bowie had come into the room with a guitar, you know, playing this song idea that he had. 
And it was really kind of like, according to Niall Rogers, it was really kind of like basic and, um, you know, simple, you know, but, you know, Niall Rogers is like a highly trained guitar player. I mean, a, a phenomenal, classically trained musician. So he took this basic song structure that Bowie had kind of presented to him and he started to work on it and he started to come up with ideas and it started to change. And it went from being some kind of like folky song to a much more funky kind of artistic and abstract song, you know, and uh, it's fascinating to me and it's fascinating to me. I can't even imagine what that must be like to be an artist and you have a producer. Because I think a lot of the time, a lot of people don't understand what the role of a producer is. But, you know, it's not just a matter of being like in the studio and working in the studio. Being a producer is more of a, you know, behind the scenes kind of thing. It's it's invisible. You know, you don't realize that a lot of the great songs that you've heard over the course of your lifetime are not just the result of you know one singer-songwriter or a group of singer-songwriters. The producers step in and they change the palette, they change the colors, they you know, they they change the way the music is being presented and how it's arranged and how the words go and how the voice sounds and the drum sounds and all those things. So, I mean, just go back in time. Think of a song. Think of uh, Free Falling by, by Tom Petty, right? Great song. Absolutely masterfully written, recorded, produced, and performed. I mean, it's just top shelf. But that is not just a result of, you know, Tom Petty sitting down with a guitar and writing a song. You know, Jeff Lynne, formerly of ELO, produced that song. So, you know, you can hear it in the Tom Petty productions. You can hear Jeff Lynne's influence. If you really know Jeff Lynne and you really listen to Tom Petty, you really take the time, right, to just sit down and just listen to the song. Forget about the video. Forget about the album cover. Forget about what Tom Petty looks like or the Heartbreakers and what they look like, right? Just go back. Listen to that song. It's, it's fascinating to me how since I've been kind of doing this idea of active listening, it has changed the way I think about music and the way I think about writing songs and producing songs and like what I should be shooting for, what I can aim for as a high watermark. You know, it's really, really strange. It sounds simple and maybe it sounds stupid, that, you know, being a musician, you think that I would have been active listening the whole time. And maybe to a certain degree I have been, but not this specific, not this focused, you know, of just sitting down sometimes, you know, picking some random song from back in the day and just really just listening to it. You know, forget about the time it came out, forget about what they looked like, you know, forget about all that stuff and just listen to the music and what the notes are doing, what the singer is doing. 
oh my gosh, when you go back and do this, one thing I got to tell you, man, there are a lot of great singers <laughs> that came out, you know, back in the 80s and in the 70s, 80s and 90s, you know, early 2000s. I mean, just over the years, there's just been so many great singers, you know, um, Dee Schneider from Twisted Sister. That sounds so funny to say it because when I say Twisted Sister, right, we associate, you know, the music with this visual that was, you know, let's face it, it was a bit extreme, a bit outrageous, you know, it appealed to, you know, a relatively narrow audience, you know, but that does not change the fact, okay, that when it came down to stepping up to the microphone and belting out a performance, you know, a vocal performance, Dee Schneider was, was amazing. He was an amazing singer. What he could do with his voice. I mean, have you ever tried to sing? You know, it's like, it is not easy to do well. You know, it is not easy to be, you know, a fantastic singer. They, they come, you know, few and far between, you know. So, you know, I thought of this idea of mentioning like in this podcast, like giving you a few songs that I would recommend you go back and you only listen to the music. OK, you just listen to it. And so, well, I guess Let's Dance by David Bowie would be one of them. Okay, the first one. Go back, find it on YouTube, but don't watch the video version. Watch like the remastered, you know, title card video, you know, with the album cover on it. And it says remastered in, you know, 2016 or something. Go back and listen to that. Just listen to it. Turn the lights off in the room. Close your eyes. Turn it up and really listen to what the music is doing. Really listen to what's happening. Now, another song that I've recently kind of discovered, and I've heard this song before, so that's not true. I didn't just discover it, but I kind of rediscovered it, okay? And this is one of the songs I would say, here's like a test to the happy innovators, okay? Go onto YouTube and find the song, Hold On To My Heart by Wasp, okay? W-A-S-P, the song is called Hold On To My Heart, okay? Now, this song, in my opinion, okay, is a great example of a song that is masterfully written, okay, and performed and recorded. Like, as a guy, me, who's, you know, written a few songs, and I still write songs, uh, you know, I, I'm listening now. I'm listening and I'm not watching. I'm just listening to the song. And yes, the song is a little corny. Okay, the lyrics are a little bit corny, but, you know, it's a love song. So it's written in the language of love. It's not something you dance to. You know, it's, it's meant to be emotional, personal, and, you know, a song about love. Okay, and, you know, hopefully, you know, you've been in love and you would understand that sometimes when you're writing a love song, 
you know, you're going to say some things that are corny. They're a little cheesy, maybe, you know, if you're a cool, if you're cool, you know, it'd be too cheesy for you. But I listen with different ears, so I get it. The language of love. Okay, let's listen, you know, and, uh, you know, this this song in particular, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I break it down. You know, I, I listen to it and I break it down. Like, okay, I imagine myself holding a guitar, sitting down in a chair and saying, okay, I'm going to write a song now. You know, I'm going to work on a song. I'm going to construct something, right? Well, you know, this guy, this singer from Wasp, his name is Blackie Lawless. Horrible name, you know? Uh, you know, unfortunately... You know, uh, the band was called Wasp and they were a heavy metal band and they had, you know, raw meat being flung at the audience and their videos were like hypersexual and skin tight pants and all sex all the time. You know, rock and roll, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. And that was what they were shooting for back in the day. But Blackie Lawless, okay, even when he was writing the heavy stuff, the really outrageous stuff, his songwriting and his voice and, you know, the chord changes and the ideas were all really well done. I mean, really executed at a very high level, okay? And um, unlike a lot of artists that are great singers, you know, because Blackie Lawless from Wasp is a great singer, Okay, trust me, as a guy who has stepped up to the microphone a few times myself, yeah, I mean, you can't just get up to the microphone and and do what he does. He's a highly, highly talented singer and songwriter, because like I was saying, like I was getting it before, um, Blackie Lawless is not just a singer. You know, he writes his own songs and he produces a lot of his own songs, so you know, this is a guy who's been in the music industry for, I don't know, a good 20, 30 years or something, you know, uh, by now, you know, he definitely has a handle on this idea of writing songs and producing songs, right? Writing lyrics and singing, you know, getting up to the microphone and, uh, singing. So they have this song, it's called hold on to my heart. And I've I liked it a long time ago. The video is a little cheesy and stuff, but with a band like Wasp, I've always kind of given them the benefit of the doubt. Okay? And uh, I, I would I would challenge you as a happy innovator, like right now, I would challenge you to go back and listen to the song Hold On To My Heart by Wasp. <laughs> Can you believe it? What a horrible name. Um, and just listen to the song for what it is. You know, it's a love song. Uh, and just listen to what this guy does with his voice and with the the things that he's saying and the, the changes, the chord changes and the ideas that he came up with to sing. I mean, his voice is all over the place. It's fantastic. He kind of has like a... Uh, a Stevie Nicks kind of quality to his voice. Even though he's a man, you know, he has that kind of, I don't even know what the word would be, like a kind of sadness in his voice. 
uh, and in the choices, the notes that he sings and where he goes with his voice, I challenge you right here and now to go onto YouTube, find the song Hold On To My Heart by Wasp and just listen to what he's doing with his voice. Just try to isolate in your happy, innovative mind. Like separate his voice from the music just and separate the music from the image. Separate the music from the superficiality, right? Like do away with it and just listen to the song for what it is, you know? Like imagine you're in the room while he's singing this song. You're sitting right in front of him while he's doing it. It would be really impressive, you know, like you wouldn't be bored watching him sing this song. It would be probably, you know, phenomenal. So there you go. Monday, the 24th of August, 2020. There's my challenge to all you happy innovators. Go back and listen to any song that you even ones that you're familiar with that you really like. Go back, turn off the lights, turn it up in your ears, in your headphones, like in your headphones, in an intimate listening setting, you know, it's, it's, it's not in the room, it's in your headphones and it's right in your ear and turn it up as loud as you can take it and just go back and listen to some of these songs. It's amazing. Go back and listen to, here's another challenge. Go back and listen to this song by Twisted Sister. It's called The Price and don't you know, like I said, separate the music from the image. You know, separate the music from Twisted Sister. You know, <laughs> you know, come on. really, you Twisted Sister. You know, I can hear you. I know, I know. But go back and listen to that song, "The Price," by Twisted Sister, and listen to what D. Schneider is doing with his voice. I mean, it is operatic. It is amazing what he is able to do, his range as a singer. And oh my gosh, the passion in his voice. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in the room while he's doing that live, like in the room in front of you. It would have to be amazing, you know? Um, so there's another challenge. Go, go listen to those two songs. And maybe comb through some of the songs that you, you're already familiar with, and the songs that you already like, and really try this idea of active listening. All right? So there you go, folks. I got to get to work. Okay, so it is Tuesday, August 25th. The year is 2020. There was a TV show that was very popular in America that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the show was called The West Wing. And, you know, I kind of have a funny history with this show. Um, (laughs) Probably unlike any other TV show. So, uh, you know, my, my wife actually got me into it, okay? And when the show was on TV, you know, when it first came out and everything, I could not care less. I mean, it was so boring and so dumb and just so, you know, just not anything that I would be interested in, you know, but that was a long time ago and it was obviously, you know, before I was married. So, 
um, you know, my wife has kind of gotten me into this show, The West Wing, over the past 20 years. Okay. And uh, it's a fantastic show. It's, I mean, it's so well done and so well written and acted and just, you know, I guess inspiring sometimes as an American citizen. It's inspiring and all that. And all that I know it sounds corny, but I'm not too cool for it. I don't care what people think. Um, I never have. So, you know, it's uh, this, this show that has really kind of become you know, one of my favorite shows, and I find that humorous, you know, I started out hating it so much, but after, you know, a little while, it's kind of like Bob Dylan songs, you know, I couldn't get it at first, like, why do people like this so much, it's so boring, and then just, you know, one day, it just clicked, and I got it, and it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, I get it now, you know, and the West Wing was a show like that. You know, that's how it happened. But this is one particular episode that I wanted to talk about. Actually, it's a scene in this episode where there's a woman. She's a Republican. She's, uh, you know, really beautiful, long blonde hair, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, your typical, you know, Republican doll, you know. And she's working in the West Wing. She's working in the White House uh, with a Democratic administration. Okay, so she's been hired by the president because she's good at what she does. Not because she's Democrat or Republican, because she's good at the job. So he hires the best person for the job. And it's this character named Ainsley Hayes, which is a really funny character. A lot of really good, funny moments with this character on the show. But in this particular episode, they're talking about the issue of gun control. Okay? And uh, it's really kind of stuck with me. You know, this, this argument that's illustrated in this episode of The West Wing. You know, it's so well done. Where she's arguing with a group of people you know, that work in the White House about the issue of gun control. And she's a Republican, a gun-toting, Bible-toting Republican, and they're Dems, you know, they're kind of like anti-gun, you know, all that stuff, right? You know the drill. Um, but anyway, throughout the course of this discussion they're having, this character, Ainsley Hayes, makes a point. And... It goes something like this. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing, but it goes something like this. Like, the problem that you have, you, you know, you Democrats have, is not the guns. It's not that you don't like the guns. It's you don't like the people who like guns. Now, think about that. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? It's not really, okay, it's not that people don't really like guns. It's that they don't like the people who like guns. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It always stuck with me. Like once I really paid attention to that particular episode, once I took the time and really listened, I probably had to watch it a few times because by this point, 
I've watched the entire West Wing uh, series, you know, from beginning to end. I've watched it numerous times with my wife. It's one of those things we can binge watch, you know. Um, I got like the, you know, the, the deluxe version box set, you know, West Wing DVD set or whatever, you know. And we've watched it so much, but this one episode, that one line, you know, there's a lot of those in that show. Trust me, there's a lot of great, great moments of writing. You know, Aaron Sorkin is a genius when it comes to writing, and uh, he got a chance to stretch out a lot on that show. I mean, he really did get to show his stuff. But think about that. You know, the problem isn't that you don't like guns the problem is that you don't like the people who like guns and that could go for any issue on either side of the aisle isn't that interesting maybe there's some truth to that that it's not really the issues in politics that we have a problem with it's the people it's the people it's not just the ideas or just the suggestions or you know just their their position on an issue it's the people and maybe maybe that points to something in America that is like really on the table right now and really should be paid attention to and maybe maybe uh, we should all take that opportunity to think about that a little bit maybe and recalibrate you know rethink it a little bit maybe maybe you know, it harkens back to that idea I was talking about, you know, in the past couple episodes of the Singularity Podcast where, you know, I'm really kind of, uh, I don't know, I kind of think that uh, maybe our will towards each other really isn't that great. Maybe it's not the issues that we don't like. Maybe it's the people who are pushing those ideas that we don't like. Interesting, isn't it? I'm going to leave it there for today. I think I meandered a little bit too much yesterday. So I'm going to cut this one a little short. But I'll talk to you some more tomorrow, Wednesday. All right? Peace out, everybody. Think about it. Think about it. Okay? Think about it. It's not the issues. It's not guns we don't like or something. It's the, it's the people that like guns. Mm. Mm. That could be the problem. You know, that could be a, a, either a symptom or, you know, an indicator. Think about it. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, it is Wednesday, the 26th of August. The year is 2020. I was watching this movie with my wife called 24 Hour Party People. You know, it's the story of a record company that came out of Manchester, England and uh, became famous and put out a lot of really influential bands. And it's kind of a whimsical, funny story, you know, about uh, what Factory Records. That was the name of the company. And they released, what, Joy Division, um, uh, New Order, uh, and... You know, the story is really kind of focused on this band called The Happy Mondays that came out on Factory Records. And uh, just a really quick thought about it. It was like the story about these guys who were in this band 
and just how reckless they were and they, just the drugs and the, you know, the substance abuse and all that stuff. And it's really done in a really funny way. I mean, the story is actually funny, you know. And uh, of course it is, you know, when people are partiers and when they're wild and, you know, all that, it's entertaining and usually very funny. A lot of funny stories, right? I mean, I'm sure you can relate. You've been drunk before or whatever, and you have stories that you can tell. But with this group, the Happy Mondays, it was just off the chain. I mean, they were just, <laughs> you know, taking whatever drug they could, you know, just... <laughs> 24-hour party people, you know. But uh, the reason I'm bringing it up, it's just a quick thought that I've had, you know. Um, when you watch the movie and, you know, you know, you listen to the music and stuff, all that stuff, watch the videos or whatever, you know, it's funny, you know, it's funny. But when you watch an interview with those guys now, like in the present day, it's not so funny, it's really, it's really not. It's actually tragic, you know, how much damage these guys did to their brains. You know, I mean, they just, uh, they have, you know, it's probably arguable that they have literally, you know, from the drugs they took in their youth, uh, the vast quantities of drugs that they took, hard drugs too, um, that they have retarded themselves. I mean, they are <laughs> cautionary tales now. You know, it's not so funny uh, when you see... <laughs> yeah, I'm laughing, but I shouldn't be. But when you see the reality of, you know, what kind of problems that lifestyle will leave you with. If you're fortunate enough, you know, to live in your 50s, you know, or 60s or something... And, uh, it, you know, it got me to thinking about it. And it's like, um, you know, I can only speak for myself, okay? I can't speak for everyone else. But I have a feeling that there's going to be a few people who can relate to what I'm saying here. Um, you know, when I was younger, obviously, I was invincible, right? I was very reckless and uh, did a lot of very stupid things, you know, and it's part of growing up, you know, it's part of being a young person, you know, you think you know everything, and it's so true, it's so true, it's a cliche, but it's so true, but, you know, there's another side to this that, you know, a lot of people don't really talk about, but, and like I said, I can only speak for myself, um, you know, having done a lot of really reckless and stupid things when I was a kid, you know, uh, one thing I never counted on, okay, was that, you know, I was going to get older, <laughs> you know, time would pass and I would get older and I would mature and, you know, you get to about the age of 40, you know, 45, 50, you get into that range and, you know, this thing happens, right? Where you start to kind of evaluate your life. You look back on your youth. You look back on the years that have passed. You know, you're reaching the halfway point, you know, 50, you know, 40 or 50. Um, 
you know, maybe a midlife crisis, that kind of thing. Is it that's what they refer to? I don't know. I wouldn't call it a crisis. It's more just like uh, a realization or, you know, opening my eyes, you know, uh, having a broader understanding of how the world works and, you know, what is right and good and, you know, what you should be doing with your time, you know. And so after thinking about it, you know, I've come to this conclusion that, um, you know, if they say that hindsight is 2020 vision, you know, that um, uh, a wise man once said that it isn't until 20 years later after an event or something in your life that you truly understand where you were, you know, like uh, with the benefit and the privilege of time and reflection, you can look back and you can realize some of the massive mistakes that you made or maybe some of the major achievements that you've made too. Okay, to be fair, you have to look at it both ways. But, um, you know, you arrive eventually, if you're fortunate enough to get older, you arrive at this point in your life. And I don't care... You know, how tough you are. I don't care how smart or stupid you are. I don't care. You will, with the benefit of age and time, you will reach a point where you look back, you reflect, and then ultimately, probably, you have regrets. Okay? Now, I've never been one of those people who says, oh, I'm happy with all the mistakes I've made because they made me the person I am today. That's bullshit, okay? I think it is. It's like, man, I look back on the mistakes I made and I'm ashamed, you know? I regret them. I wish I could go back and and do it over, but there are no do-overs. And that's something you realize when you get older. And I wish, I wish... And this is the thought I have today. I wish that I would have uh, paid more attention and been more responsible, you know, been a better person and made smarter decisions than I had made when I was younger. You know, I look back on that person that I was when I was younger and it shocks me how reckless I was, how silly I was, how stupid I was. And, oh, man, at the time, I thought I was, the, you know, the bee's knees. I thought I was doing just fine. But now, looking back, you know, I'm pushing 50 years old, looking back on my life, and I think, man, here are some words of wisdom that the young people that are maybe listening to this podcast right now can take into their head and really kind of maybe think about it at least, okay? Be careful. Okay, young people, be very careful in your younger years to make as few mistakes as possible. Really pay attention to your actions and how they affect people and what they do and the impact you have. Uh, Don't take it for granted. Don't take it lightly. Be very careful about your choices and your decisions. You know, hopefully you can find somebody who's wise and older than you to help guide you. Um, That would be great. It's not always the case for everyone, but be careful. Be 
very careful. Tread lightly in your younger years because it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how tough you are, how soft you are, you know, what kind of person you are. If you are fortunate enough to live enough life to, you know, get to age 50, what, 60, 70, 80, you know, uh, you will, no matter who you are, you will reach a point in your life where you look back, you know, and, oh, the mistakes, oh, the things I would do different. Oh, I wish I could scream at my younger self. Get out of there. Don't do that. Go another way. Go left instead of right. Like, zig, don't zag. You know, ah, the regret, you know. Now, is it all consuming? No, but let's face it. (laughs) You look back, you reflect, you know, through older, you know, hopefully much more mature eyes, you know, and... Ugh. Avoid it. Young people, avoid it. Trust me, hear what I say. I'm warning you. Be very, very careful about the decisions you make in your youth because the fewer mistakes you have, the happier you will be when you get older, if you're lucky enough to get older. So there you go. There's my thought for today. Peace out, everybody. Okay, so it's Thursday, August 27th, 2020. You know, there's this song by Neil Diamond, the famous singer. It's called America, you know. And, uh, you know, this song over time has become, okay, kind of like a flag-wavy a patriotic song, you know, about America, you know, this idea of America and immigration and what that's what that means, you know, and they play it on the 4th of July over the loudspeakers while the fireworks are going off. Right. Because it's this anthem, this uh, you know, epic anthem uh, and a very well constructed and performed song, obviously, because it's so famous now. I mean, it's just so well done. But there's a there's a kind of stigma that has been attached to that song now, where you know it's it's falling into that category of like cheesy, you know, Americana, flag wavy, you know, patriotic, yay, you know, that kind of thing. And there are a contingency of people that kind of look down on that maybe a little bit, you know, they kind of laugh it off like it's cheesy and corny and it's not cool anymore. You know, it's not cool, never was, you know. Um, But I got to tell you, I think differently about that song than a lot of other people do, you know. Because, okay, encapsulated in that song is this idea, okay? It's not about necessarily just the idea of America, okay? It's about the idea of emigrating from another country, you know, leaving your home, okay? 
and abandoning your home and going off into a new frontier where it's unfamiliar, it's maybe a little bit dangerous, uh, there's the uh, you know possibility of failing, you know, sinking or swimming, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, that's a very serious uh, theme for a song. You know, that's a pretty heavy idea, you know. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, stay in the city that they were born in. You know, they, they live in the same region. They never move. Uh, they stay close to what they know. And it's very common, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Okay? But it does take a certain amount of, I don't know, pluck, right? A certain amount of attitude and ambition to leave your home behind and go off into the unfamiliar, you know, to go on an adventure with your life, not some game. I mean, it's with your life to leave behind everything you know. Uh, it's a very serious idea. And, you know, for the people who did leave their home for whatever reason, maybe you were in the military, maybe you got a job somewhere or whatever it was, okay, whatever the reasons were, regardless of any of that, you still had to pack up and go. You had to actually do it. And that's not easy to do. And I can speak from experience because I've actually done that. Now, I didn't go to another country. Okay, which is whoa. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would have been like, but I guess I kind of can because I might as well have, right? Moving to a city far away from my family, far away from the streets I walked as a kid and the restaurants and the things that were familiar, you know, to abandon all that and to go off into the unknown. You know, I actually did that. And, you know, it wasn't the most difficult thing in the world, but it wasn't the easiest either, you know. And uh, when I hear that song by Neil Diamond, you know, America, that's what he's singing about. You know, he's singing about the idea of leaving behind what is familiar with the, you know, uh, with the spirit of adventure and going off into the unknown and having hope, you know, hope, great word, that you will have a better life, that you're leaving behind the dark days and there's hope for the future. You're going to go to a new place. You're going to put your stakes down and you're going to move forward and you're going to succeed in an unknown, unfamiliar place. So when people that I know, okay, laugh at this song, America by Neil Diamond, I don't laugh because I see it differently. And I listen to what he's singing about and how he's singing about it, the poetry and his lyrics and what he's saying and it's actually quite beautiful it's it's really 
exceptional, you know, an exceptional artistic breath. You know, this song, America, by Neil Diamond. I suggest you go back and listen to it. And if you do, you know, if you so choose to do that, keep what I've just said to you in mind. That spirit of ambition and courage, you know, to go off into the unknown with the hope for the future that it might be better for you. That you'll find, you know, what? The American dream. You know, what what America has promised the people who emigrate from other countries. And let me tell you, you know, you'll hear people harp on America and all of its flaws and all that kind of stuff. And, oh, the education system is bad. And, oh, this is bad and that is bad. But let me tell you something. There are a lot of people from all over the world that are dreaming of coming here. And that's not for no reason, you know. Uh, You know, (laughs) it's like, just think about colleges alone, you know, people coming from all over the world to go to MIT, you know, or to Harvard or Yale or Brown, you know, people coming from all over the world to go to Berkeley, California and go to school, you know, that's just school. That's not even all the other stuff, you know, just think about that. What America offers uh, people who have you know, no life or no chance for success in whatever city or country they're in. Uh, And they gird up their loins, they pack up their stuff, and they make their way to America to make their dreams come true. Yeah, you can roll your eyes, you can call it cheesy, and you can call it corny, but for a lot of people, that's reality. Now, that is actually happening, you know? I mean, think about that. When you see that guy, you know, the hot dog vendor. Well, used to see hot dog vendors. Won't probably be seeing any of those anytime soon. But, you know, for the sake of conversation today, that guy who has that hot dog stand, you know, on Times Square. He emigrated from, you know, Lebanon. And now he's making his way in America and he's starting out small. Hopefully, he'll be able to hand something down to his children, give them a little bit better life than he had. And the idea would be that, you know, each generation would go a step up, you know, in status, like, you know, in security, financial security, right? That's the dream of America, you know. So, you know, when you see the guy, you know, who's driving the cab with the turban on his head, who just emigrated from India, you know. I guess maybe have a little compassion, right? You know, I mean, this guy has balls. You know, it takes balls to do that, to to pack your family up and make your way to another country like that. You know, when I hear that song by Neil Diamond and I hear what he's saying and he's how he's singing about it, that's what it makes me think. You know, actually, there's another song. It's called The Winds of Change. It's by a group called the Scorpions. And, you know, it was written around the time when the Berlin Wall was coming down. And for all you young people, that's like an abstraction to you, probably. You don't even really know. You saw it in a book, maybe, in history class. But I actually lived through it. 
You know, I was alive. I watched it unfolding. And, you know, there was this song that the Scorpions were inspired to write about this idea of the wall coming down and, and the hope for the people who lived there, you know, who were directly affected every day. Their families were torn apart. Their lives were destroyed because of this freaking wall, you know, and uh, what it meant you know, symbolically for this wall to come down. Now, I'm an American kid from the suburbs. You know, what the hell do I care about what's going on in East and West Germany? But even I, in my suburban bubble, was able to kind of get the sentiment of that song. And not so much what it meant to me. Okay? Because a lot of my friends and people now would consider it corny and cheesy and not cool and, you know, lame and, oh, you know, how idealistic this song called The Winds of Change, singing about the hope that the people in East and West Germany had, you know, with this wall coming down, this, this, this horrible scar across their country, you know, and in history, like watching it come down and people being free, you know, the, the freedom, you know, and the hope for the future. And when I hear that song, I, I really kind of get it. I always have right away, you know, that it's not about me. They're not singing about me. They're singing about the people that lived there and what that song meant to those people. I would bet dollars to donuts that to this day when people from that area, you know, East Germany, West Germany, the people who were affected, their lives were affected, their daily lives were affected by that wall. When they hear that song, even now, it's probably, for lack of a better word, it's probably very moving still, you know, because they can remember Remember the time when the wall was up and when it came down, you know? Think about that. The winds of change. Go back and listen to it. He's singing about this experience that so many of these people had, you know? And I know it sounds all, you know, imagestic and, you know, dramatic, you know? But damn it, it was, you know? was this was their life (laughs) really is not a joke and it's not just a song with these you know mushy lyrics it really has meaning for a lot of people i would imagine so there's your thought for today thursday the 27th of august 2020 okay happy innovators It is Friday, the 28th of August, 2020, the final installment of my five-day podcast. And uh, I was just thinking the other night, I was remembering, you know, the uh, Occupy movement. Remember that? Back in 2011, you know? Uh, (laughs) Oh, what a strange thing that was, wasn't it? I mean, you think, yeah, you know, today is much weirder, I will admit. Things are, (laughs) things have gotten worse, okay? But at the time when Occupy was actually happening, you know, 
it was really quite remarkable. You know, it was like, wow, this is actually, you know, something happening. You know, people are demanding change and wow, look at this. They're, they're taking a stand and, you know, that is after all what the framers intended. Like you're supposed to be allowed to do that. You know, that's how things change in America, right? People demand it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because I remember, you know, back in the day, back in 2011, when the Occupy movement was starting and all that stuff was going on, um, you know, I was working on a song called Almost Time. I wound up releasing it, uh, you know, a few years ago on a different album, much later, you know, after this period of time, probably in 2014 or 2015 or something. So I wrote the song back in 2011. Uh, and it was really kind of uh, around the time Occupy was happening. And I just really kind of thought, wow, that's a kind of a weird coincidence. Like there's this, you know, wind of change blowing through America right now. And uh, I got this song called Almost Time and it's about the future, and, you, know, you know, hope, you know. Uh, there again, that word hope, what a great word. I think it's something that a lot of people need right now. Not sure how much there is to go around, but, you know, that's a separate podcast. But um, I also remember, okay, now I also remember when the Occupy movement was happening, there were a couple of things that I found a little bit suspicious about what I was watching, okay? Almost like, um, well, okay, I remember specifically. Okay, I remember specifically watching the, the video footage, the, the news coverage of what was happening on Wall Street, you know, Occupy Wall Street. And uh, they had these protesters, you know, on the sidewalk, you know, waving their banners and their picketing and protesting. And then they showed this group of, you know, fat cats sitting on one of the balconies or standing on one of the balconies of, you know, one of the buildings of Wall Street, like the New York Stock Exchange. And, you know, they're wearing pearls and dresses and suits and ties and, you know, big bucks, big money, big money people, right? Uh, looking down on the, uh, you know, proletariats, you know, <laughs> the peasants down on the sidewalk you know, with their picketing and their signs, you know, and, you know, these fat cats are up on this balcony, like drinking champagne. And I thought to myself, when I saw that back in 2011, I, as God is my witness, I thought to myself, that's staged. That's fake. It's like scripted, you know, it's like a movie, you know, these a-holes up on this balcony, right? Like drinking champagne and let them eat cake, those peasants down there on the sidewalk. Uh, what does it mean? I don't know. I guess I'll leave that to you to kind of think about. That was my impression. So now when I see anything about Occupy Wall Street, anything from that era... What do I remember? I remember that I got the distinct impression that what I was watching was staged. 
It really seemed that way to me. It was ridiculous. What was happening was ridiculous. Now, I might be wrong. You know, I might be wrong. But uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You decide. You decide for yourself. And I'll decide for myself. But I don't know. A little weird. You know, I was also thinking about this. You know, there's so many people right now. It's like, uh, especially in America, but really all over the world that are either, you know, for President Trump or against President Trump. You know, there's like this, uh, what, war of culture, you know, happening or whatever you want to call it, right? Um, so I guess maybe what I should do at this point is, uh, you know, give you like an opportunity to opt out, like to turn off my podcast right now, because I'm going to talk about Donald Trump a little bit about some thoughts that I've had. And they may be like, they may trigger you or they may offend you or something. <laughs> you know, I don't want to trigger you. You know, I really don't. I want to like, just talk openly, be able to talk openly and freely about some things. But um, so there's your opportunity. I'll count to three and then, you know, that'll give you a chance to turn this off. Ready? One, two, three. Okay. Are you still with me? I hope so. Anyway, I was thinking about Donald Trump. You know, he's kind of a fascinating character, whether you love him or hate him. You know, he's a fascinating character. And, uh, of course, since he's been president. You know, I've just kind of noticed, I guess, a lot of things about the past. Uh, these times when Donald Trump had emerged, you know, in the public eye over the past 30 or 40 years, you know. He's just been kind of like in movies and commercials and sporting events and making the news, you know, the gossip columns and of, you know, his wife and Oh, the money and oh, the the wealth, you know, all those things. And, you know, like I said, whether you love Donald Trump or you hate him, you can't deny, okay, that he's had quite a remarkable life. You know, when you think about it, like regardless of what you think about him personally, when you think about you know, putting yourself in his shoes, you know, living that life. Wow. What a life, you know, can you even imagine? I can't not really. I mean, you know, I've, it's been hard scrabble for me, you know, my whole life, you know, I've had to scratch for every penny, you know, or to make ends meet. Right. I mean, it's always been this struggle to, you know, keep the basics, you know, but can you even imagine, can we even imagine, right, as a society, as a culture, can we even begin to imagine what his life must have been like? I'm sure that it was glamorous, uh, you know, I'm sure it was a lot of times comfortable, but, oh, the pressure, you know, and the responsibilities that come with being a, 
a billionaire, you know, being like this guy who has so much money and power and whatever. Whether you love him or hate him, it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be Donald Trump. It could be anybody who finds themselves in that situation. But then, you know, you think about it and it's like, how many people are billionaires? You know, millionaires, billionaires, money to burn, you know, but even they don't get to become president. You know, not only do they have money and wealth beyond anything you can imagine and, you know, responsibility and, you know, those things too, but then they get power, you know, the leader of the free world all in one lifetime. Can you imagine? Uh, it's got to be overwhelming to stop, you know, to be a Donald Trump and to stop and look back, right? Like, what a life. It's amazing. It is amazing, you know? Wow, you know, how many people can say they've done that? And, you know, it is kind of interesting. There's a, there's a lot of things about Donald Trump that are you know, good and bad, you know, it's not all good and it's not all bad. I'm somewhere in the middle with our president, you know, I'm not totally dissatisfied. I'm uh, actually a lot of the time, I think it's a little bit entertaining, you know, uh, probably like a lot of people do, but, um, you know, I think about him a lot, of course, now because the election is coming up and there's a lot to think about with our president. And you know, there's a lot of interesting things about this character this person, you know, like I said, love him or hate him. doesn't matter. Let's stop for a moment. Let's like, uh, let's put the politics down for a minute and just kind of examine this person, you know, as a man and what he's managed to do or what he's managed to become in his life. It's astounding, astounding. And it's also kind of a little bit weird too, you know, there's this kind of sentiment that I see now emerging around Donald Trump where, you know, you have these people that are claiming he's anointed by God, you know, he's this messianic figure, you know, on the world scene and, oh, you know, he's been chosen by almighty God to change and purge, you know, and to make things happen. And you know, when I hear people talk like that, personally, I don't know. It's a little weird, okay? It's a little creepy. Like, Donald Trump may be or may not be a lot of things, but he's not Jesus. You know, he's not a deity. You know, he's a man. Um, so it makes me a little bit nervous and it weirds me out a little bit. When I hear people talking about him as this, you know, messianic figure, this anointed king, you know, by God, you know, oh, okay, maybe that's true. I don't know. Maybe it is, but it's just a little weird to me. And I'm a Christian. I mean, I'm a practicing Christian. I try to be. So, you know, it weirds me out even, you know, that's a little strange. Um, but, you know, another thought I have, and this will be my final thought for today. Um, you know, there's all this stuff going on right now with China and Donald Trump. Okay. Now, my understanding of the situation right now with, uh, you know, 
global trade, you know, exports and imports, all those things, negotiations and deals for trade. Um, I don't know everything there is to know about it. In fact, I would probably consider myself someone who doesn't know very much about all that kind of stuff. But one thing I got to say, I mean, I can't deny it, you know, uh, I am not sure what happened with the trade negotiations with China, okay? Um, but I can imagine, and I get the distinct impression from what I'm hearing and seeing right now, that when Donald Trump sat down at the negotiating table with China, uh, he must have put the screws to those guys. I mean... Like they've never had it before because man has there been a backlash over what he managed to change when it came to trade negotiations with America and China. I don't know what happened. I don't know what he said or did, but I'll tell you what I can imagine. Okay. Like I said before, I'll say it again, love him or hate him. You know, when it comes to negotiating a deal, you know, you can say what you want, okay, but his track record proves it, okay? This guy knows how to negotiate a deal, okay? On a bad day, he knows how to do that. But can you imagine the power and the people that he could bring to a negotiating table now? Now that he's the leader of the free world, you know, he has his pick of all the people, you know, when he needs an accountant to come to China with him to negotiate a trade deal. Can you imagine the guy that he can get? You know, he's the president. All he has to do is ask. And you're kind of like obligated to say yes, you know, as a form of your patriotism. You know, the president is requesting your skill. You must serve your country if he's asking for you. So, food for thought, can you imagine the people that Donald Trump brings to a negotiating table now? You know, I mean, the sleekest, slickest, smartest, you know, most ruthless dudes to sit down and negotiate a deal you know, at his side of the table. Think about that. It's got to be overwhelming. Apparently, it must have been because, like I said, I don't know for sure, but it seems like something happened, you know, with these trade deals with China that just really rubbed their rhubarb. I mean, they are just... He knocked them back on their heels, you know? And, uh, oh my, are we seeing the backlash, you know? But uh, think about that. The power he wields... You know, when it comes to negotiating, ah, you know, maybe he's not great at everything else, but let me tell you, when it comes to negotiating a deal, you know, on behalf of America, and oh, you know, it's like, I really do hope, I hope that Donald Trump is really good. You know, I hope that, you know, he's really on the side of America. You know, he's not going to sell us out somehow in the future or something. I hope not. You know, I hope that, you know, it's, it can take it at face value. 
you know. But who knows, right? It's such a confusing time. But, oh, you know, I'll tell you what. I really am glad he's on our side, you know, when it comes to negotiating stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm glad he's on our side, you know. Uh, <laughs> you can't deny it, you know. Whatever you think about the man, you know, whatever your politics are or you know, whatever your thoughts are, whatever, you can't deny it. There aren't too many people I can think of that I would rather have, you know, negotiating with Putin, you know, or negotiating with China, you know. <laughs> it's like, I don't know if there's anybody that could do it like that guy can, you know. Especially now, like I said, with the power that he has, the people he can bring to the table. Can you imagine the team? The team of people, you know, even the secretaries are top shelf, you know, everything, everything is exactly, you know, the best, the most powerful, the most talented people, you know, think about it. A little bit of hope, I guess, maybe. You know, but, uh, no, I can, you know, I know, I know, I know. There's a lot of people that don't like Donald Trump. There's a lot of people who do like Donald Trump, but maybe sometimes, you know, if we're broad minded enough and we're, you know, intellectual enough and we are, you know, happy innovators, we can put aside politics and just kind of look at the person for what they are, you know, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. Very unusual, very unusual, unlikely outcome for a life. You know, what an amazing life. Can you imagine a millionaire, you know, like 30 years old, you know, like he's never known poverty. He's never known, you know, the idea of having nothing, you know, having nothing. He's always had something, right? So quite a remarkable thing to think about really and to go all the way to the oval office in your lifetime to go through all that stuff and wind up in the oval office that happened that happened it's pretty amazing folks some food for thought uh, hopefully i didn't offend you you know i guess i have to put this in here you know hopefully hopefully i didn't offend you hopefully you're not triggered <coughs> um and uh, I guess I'm going to leave it there for now. i got some stuff to take care of today, and this is going to be a pretty long podcast. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I'm going to take off. Uh, peace out. Have a great week. Take care of yourself. And you'll be hearing me on the next podcast. So, this is Mike Bostwick from Pipe Choir Records signing off. And remember, folks, if you want to keep what you've got, you've got to give it away. Take it easy. Okay, Happies, I got some music for you today for the end of the podcast. 
Um, you know, I mentioned in the podcast that song I have called Almost Time. Uh, I wrote it around the time of the Occupy movement. I didn't write it because of the Occupy movement. It just happened to be a coincidence that I was writing this song about the hope for the future and, you know, an optimistic kind of song. And right at that same time, the whole Occupy Wall Street thing happened. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool, you know, like I'm writing this kind of theme about hope in the future. And you know, here's this this wind of change blowing through uh, Wall Street. You know, there's people from America taking a stand right now. And it was all innocent and different at that time. Um, so when I hear the song Almost Time, I kind of go back in my memory a little bit to that time and I remember the things and occupy this and all those, you know, protesters and, you know, this energy, you know, that was happening. And uh, this song kind of reminds me of that whenever I hear it. So without further ado, um, this song, Almost Time, you know, I released it on the Pipe Choir Escon's album. I did three versions of it. Uh, one version was a rock and roll version. Another version was an acoustic guitar version. And then another version was the PC3 Honest Wave version where it was 15 minutes or more. I think that song went about 20 minutes. I'm not sure. The PC3 version of Almost Time was probably, I think, 20 minutes. Um, but it's a good song. I'm going to let you hear the version I did and, and the version that I released on the Pipe Choir album, the rock and roll version. So without further ado, Almost Time by Pipe Choir, circa 2017. Peace out, everybody. Champions of the spot. 